Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Alex, and I am back at it with you as we are now digging into the New Testament eschatology that we have been talking about getting to for so very long now. Um, it's been a while, right? We concluded the Christmas series with... Um, uh, the Christmas Day episode that we had Chris from Ezra Reads a Law joining us on. And, you know, I thought that was a really fun series, something kind of different. It was something that we weren't, um, uh, you know, I didn't really plan on doing until maybe the end of October. And uh, it just kind of felt, felt right. It came together really well. Uh, and it kind of mirrored my preaching sermons uh, that I deliver to the church that I am now pastoring at. So for those who don't know, uh, I have taken a full-time gig and moved to Iowa where I am pastoring a small church, uh, about 150 total people. And we are in a small little country town and we are moved over completely and, um, really just, getting the the wheels to hit in the ground this week. It seems like uh, things are finally starting to move forward and we're unpacked and uh, no more traveling. I had to do a little traveling back and forth to Chicago to conclude some of my prior jobs business, but it's <clears throat> everything's moving forward now. So that's nice. But uh, so I did a small Christmas series for him. And in that series, I, talked about the prophecies and some of the language and words, uh, names given to Christ. And then we did a Christmas Eve special, and then we did a Christmas Day special with uh, Chris. So it took a good few weeks of a break from eschatology, and now we are back at it. So uh, I have looked at how I want to kind of structure this series and I want to kind of use a few talking points, if I could, 
and uh, I want to provide some insight, uh, some overviews maybe today, uh, and then next week we will really start to dig into it. So here's really what I'm thinking. Uh, there's three main portions of text that comes in the New Testament, mainly the Gospels, because that's our big focal point for this uh, portion of the series. Uh, it's Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and then Luke 21. And so what we're going to look at is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it takes that name because this is the place where Jesus delivers this sermon series from. Uh, so in Matthew, it gives us the most descriptive detail around this particular sermon series. And in this, we have all sorts of warnings and text that is just uh, makes your knuckles <laughs> turn white when you're gripping your chair because it's like, wow, this is really intense stuff. So we are going to look at how that comes through. What does some of it mean? Uh, can we actually make sense of it? Uh, from a biblical perspective, and does it have implications on our, our uh, on our lives today? So, today we're going to kind of look at what did Jesus teach, and we're going to uh, go over some of these topics, and we might start looking at the beginning portions of twenty four, uh, but we're going to look at the correlations uh, between these three chapter uh, three sections in the Gospels uh, as we work through this series. And uh, as we've done in the Old Testament, uh, it won't be every single word in the gospel that or refers to some sort of eschatological pinpoint, but uh, we're taking the big chunks of text and trying to um, understand them better because these are some of the most often twisted, manipulated, misunderstood, misrepresented pieces of scripture, um, probably in all of the New Testament. So I want to really make sure that we uh, develop this line of thinking and how to um, understand it going forward. So Guys, I know I've been <clears throat> talking uh, a lot about a lot of different things. Um, I didn't really do much in regards to, you know, advertising this show itself during the Christmas season. But, you know, I do want to make sure that for those who do listen, we are um, listener sponsored, right? So those who come alongside this ministry help fund this ministry and, um, gives me the ability to continue to provide and produce content. And because of those individuals, I've been able to consistently put out uh, content on a weekly basis. Now, I am transitioning jobs, obviously. Uh, January is the first month that I will not have my prior career. It has now been completed and done and over with. And I am moving on into ministry. So, you know, life is much different for me. And so I hope to be able to produce maybe a little bit more digital content, uh, videos, things like that. That's the biggest kind of uh, thing that I'm looking forward to in the coming months. But because of that, um, most of that content will be exclusively driven only for those who uh, support this ministry. And I do provide a lot of exclusive content for them. They get the podcast early. They get my sermon notes. They get any schoolwork that I write up. Um, they help critique things like that. I get. I ask their opinions on stuff and, uh, and get their insight. I do private giveaways for them. 
Uh, we do Bible studies, all the sorts, right? So that to me has been the biggest influence and help in this ministry is all of the patrons. So for as, as low as a dollar a month, you can join this family, this community, and we've built some amazing friendships. We have an amazing support network. And because of them, I can keep going each day with, and, and walk with Christ knowing that they are walking alongside me. Uh, right now we're doing this year-long Bible study together. We're working through it chronologically. And as this episode is recorded, we're a handful of chapters into the book of Job. We've gone through the first few in Genesis, so we're working through it in a chronological manner. And it's really fascinating to read alongside other people and get their thoughts as we talk about it in our in our forums. So uh, we also have a private chat forum set up that you can hang out in and talk and live life with us. So for a dollar a month or more, if you choose to, gets you in and gets you all of that access on top of exclusive content uh, around video chats and things like that that I'm looking to build on as the month progresses. So I really, like I said, I'm very adamant about it because that is what helps fuel this ministry. And, you know, I, these individuals, I love them dearly, have been so supportive of everything I've done and have helped me tremendously beyond that. So please be prayerfully considering that. If you have any questions, you can obviously DM me at uh, reformed underscore lifestyle on Instagram. You can hit me up uh, undying light ministries at gmail.com through email. You can visit our website and submit a question as there as well as undyinglight.org. So some other kind of headlight highlight things that I'm looking to bring forward. We're going to start writing more articles for the website and for the blog, maybe a couple of months. Um, I don't think we'll be able to do weekly stuff just yet, but as I get into a rhythm in this life, this new life, uh, we'll start bringing together some content in the coming weeks just around some interesting topics and things like that. So I'm looking forward to that as well. So keep your eyes open for the website, undyinglight.org. Subscribe to it so you get alerts when I publish new content. And I also have guest writers come on all the time. And by all the time, I mean the last handful of articles have been from guest writers. Uh, so check out their work. They have done amazing jobs. So please go and check those articles out. And obviously, if you want to help support this ministry in other ways, you can buy Undying Light merchandise. And that link is in the bio on my Instagram page as well. As And uh, the other aspect is the Logos Bible software that I use. And that's what I'm using right now, literally looking at it as I have my ESV study Bible open to Matthew 24. And I have some notes and my other study tools open as well as we are digging into this text going forward. So as I have said early on, uh, we're looking at the Olivet Discourse and we're going to look at it in depth um, in the coming weeks. I don't, I don't think we're going to spend, you know, six weeks on this. I envision only a few, um, but we'll kind of see where life takes us and how well we can work through this content. Um, I want to try to, like I said, give you as much in-depth uh, study behind it. And I want to try to help you understand things as best as possible. And I don't want to make this, you know, uh, too high level. Like I really want to spend time digging into this content and hopes that you 
you know, can walk away with some sort of understanding from it. So with that, what we're going to look at today, again, is kind of this high-level view of the Olivet Discourse and how it kind of plays into all other things. So as I said, this is where uh, the name is given because of the location this sermon was preached. This discourse is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke chapter 21. This is the longest teaching discourse recorded in the gospel of Mark. And interestingly enough, uh, we are studying Mark in our Bible study for the Patreons. And Mark is made up of very, very small segment teachings. Uh, they're basically just the, the, the meat and potatoes. It, Mark tells you the most important things that you need to know, and then he moves on. Matthew gives you much more descriptive details and really kind of paints the, the world around Christ. So interesting to kind of read the two in reflection of each other. So in the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage that is really more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. And this is coming from William L. Lane. The questions posed by the form and, con and the content of the chapter and by its relationship to the gospel as a whole are complex and difficult to have the occasion of an extensive literature. Uh, what Lane says of Mark could also be said of Matthew and Luke as well. Now, I'm taking uh, some of my notes and, and reading from uh, the book, uh, The Last Days According to Christ. And this is written by R.C. Sproul. So I'd recommend if you have it to go and read it. I'm not going to, we're not going to go through this whole book in, in depth, but I do have some of the content that uh, Sproul puts in here. I do really enjoy um, and I think it's quite helpful. So I'm just kind of reading through uh, some of this material in here. So there's a whole a whole bunch in here uh, that he kind of sets up um, in regards to this particular text and how some of these scholars have kind of formulated these these ideas around it. So biblical scholars have questioned the authenticity of the discourse, which has been called the small apocalypse. Vincent Taylor cites this theory, which has been adopted by many critical scholars. The suggestion is that in anticipation of the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, some unknown Christian edited a small Jewish or Jewish Christian apocalypse as a kind of fly sheet to give encouragement and hope to Christians of his day and incorporated therewith eschatological sayings of Jesus. Now, that's one theory. Other theories have suggested that the discourse is completely inauthentic or reflections of the work are later redacted, who fuse together different strands, uh, a redactor, I'm sorry, a later work of a redactor, somebody who's edited together the, uh, the works. Uh, this person may have fused together different strands of an oral tradition that originated in the teachings of Jesus, but are not homogeneous form found in the gospels themselves. So there's all right off the bat, as we begin to dig into this, we find that these lengthy sermons are already coming under fire. Um, and people are already calling, um, you know, whether the work, the original manuscripts or the, the manuscripts that we have present that have these recorded, if they are really, in fact, authentic, 
or if they were added at a later date or if maybe that it was just something that uh, was, you know, as the latter theory shows, just perhaps an a oral tradition that was carried down through the time of Christ and then just kind of penciled in, if you would. So let's look at how this discourse begins. So in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, this is how it starts. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, that's verse 1, verse 2 says, But he answered them, You will see these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So now that's verses 1 and 2. So let's compare the openings of Matthew 24, 1 and 2, and look at Mark and Luke. So Mark 13 starts uh, fairly similar. It says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see the manner of the stones and the buildings are here. And Jesus answered him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Luke similarly says, Then, as some spoke of the temple and how they adored with beautiful stones and donations, he said to them, As for these things you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another, and then not be thrown down. So, the, the beginning and the end are very, very similar. Uh, we get engagement from the disciples Actual, we get words from the disciples and Mark, and we just kind of get a murmur of them in Matthew. We don't get it in Luke at all. Uh, we get a little bit of a murmur in Luke. So, and it just says, some spoke of the temple. Matthew says, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But in Luke, or I'm sorry, in Mark, you see this teacher, see what manner these stones and what buildings are here. So Jesus begins this Olivet Discourse with a statement about the temple. Every stone in this temple is going to be thrown down. This is how he just starts off this whole series, right? It is important to note that this entire discourse is provoked simply by these words about the destruction of this temple. So now we can move on to verse 3. And in Matthew, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? As they mirror Matthew. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? Likewise, in Luke chapter 21, verse 7, and they asked him, saying, teacher, but when will these things be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So I really like this this layout here that we're getting this picture being painted because see in Matthew, it says his disciples come to him privately and Mark. We actually know which disciples come. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew and Luke. It's just, they now I'm not saying Luke's a bad gospel. It's just Luke doesn't have some of the descriptive terms that we've seen. Um, 
And in fact, Luke appears to be a little bit slimmer in the wording on this particular sermon. Mark is a little bit more lengthy, and it's in fact, as I mentioned, the longest text in Mark, the longest sermon recorded in Mark. And Matthew obviously just gives us all of the meat possible, and I uh, absolutely love the text that uh, Matthew gives us. So in all three of these Gospels, the disciples ask two questions. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of their fulfillment? And we notice that only one of the three accounts includes the question about the coming of Christ at the end of the age. This question is reported by Matthew, but omitted by Luke and Mark. Now, check this out. In his commentary on the harmony of the evangelist, John Calvin says that it is implicit in Matthew and implicit in Mark and Luke. Mark mentions, this is Calvin writing, Mark mentions four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but neither he nor Luke states the matter so fully as Matthew. For they only say that the disciples inquired about the time and the destruction of the temple, and, as it was a thing difficult to be believed, what outward sign of God would be given from heaven. Matthew tells us that they, were, that they inquired about the time of Christ's coming and the end of the age. But what must be observed that, having believed in their infancy, that the temple should stand till the end of time, and having this opinion deeply rooted in their minds, they did not suppose that while the building of the world, uh, of the world stood, the temple could fall in ruins. Accordingly, as soon as Christ said that the temple would be destroyed, their thoughts immediately turned to the end of the world. They associate the coming of Christ with the end of the world and all things inseparable from each other. So that's interesting, right? So let's let's kind of um, put this in the parking lot, right? We'll come back to this this whole thread really quick in a minute. I want to make sure that we understand where we come from uh, as we left the Old Testament in November, and now we pick it back up here in January. The Old Testament, all of the disciples not disciples, my apologies, all of the prophets and uh, people that we have seen risen kings and judges and patriarchs uh, through the faith, we're not looking at the end of the world. So anytime we come across some sort of eschatological language, as I've noted, they were looking forward to a Messiah. They were given this promise and they were looking forward to, because that's really at its core what eschatological studying does. It's our looking forward to. Now, obviously, the Old Testament is much different than the New, because now here in the New, we have Christ, the fulfillment of that promise given to us in Genesis and every book since. We have Christ who has come, lived, died, and resurrected. Now, as we move forward in our views today, the eschatological view isn't waiting for the first Messiah. It's waiting for the triumphant king. We are anticipating Jesus. And as Calvin notes, the apostles here are associating the destruction of the temple with the end of times. Now, if we look back into the Old Testament, we've seen some language that sounds like literally end of the world stuff. When we were going through Daniel and Ezekiel, we noted that. But oftentimes, it wasn't necessarily the the actual 
ending of the world. It was just perhaps the ending of a kingdom or the ending of an age or time. And so those are things we have to understand that in the Old Testament, there wasn't this, I wouldn't call it a fear or maybe even understanding, but they were more or less waiting for the anticipation of this Messiah that was promised to them. And that was, you know, we talked about it extensively in Genesis that this promise was Christ. And that is what all the Old Testament does to us, right? It points us towards Christ. It's all a movement towards Jesus and his coming. And the New Testament is the, the revelation of that, right? It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, and what can the Christian expect going forward now that Christ has come and he has opened the floodgates of faith to all who hear the word preached? So the interesting notion is, is how much these two books differ in regards to each other in, ref, in reflection of eschatological views, right? The first Old Testament was always a pointing towards Christ, the, the culmination of the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises that God has given through the ages, starting from Adam and Eve and all the way to the end. And then we have the uh, New Testament with the announcement of Christ that we talked about at Christmas time. And then we have now Jesus in his ministry, as we are talking about the end of times, because now his disciples are, you know, fearful of what could possibly come here. Why, why are you telling us this? Because they had it in their minds that this temple can't be thrown down. They thought it was indestructible. And so when they hear that Jesus says that these stones will be thrown down and not one will be on top of another, literally it will be laid flat. They think that literally the world will end when that happens, because again, they associate, you know, this temple with being the dwelling place of God and that if God abandons this temple, then, you know, the end will really come. So that is the, uh, you know, significant difference. And so now we will see Jesus start to unpack these, uh, this understanding and start to give these signs and start to talk about some of these significant events. And I tell you, it is absolutely cringe worthy words. I mean, if if you were to just sit down and open your Bible and say, I'm going to read the first chapter I, I get to, and it's Matthew 24. By the time you hit verse five, you st- it's it's cringing, right? It, this is like, how this is frightening text, because Jesus says, "For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, and the end is not yet." For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. I just, wow. I mean, I read this over and over, and I've done, I've looked at this text, I've preached on this text, I've studied on this text, and I'm not a theologian, you know, with with a degree in eschatological reading or, or, you know, understanding I am simply, but a pastor going through seminary and, you know, I am just doing my due diligences of studying this 
And I have read this text over and over and over again, and it still gut punches me every single time. So now I want to look back here and we're going to look at what R.C. Sproul has in his book because uh, there's a good little section of, of paragraphs here that uh, Calvin has. And there's a individual that R.C. has quoted numerous times. His name is James Stuart Rush Russell. And I want to uh, kind of highlight this these couple small paragraphs. So here we go. Calvin regarded as erroneous the disciples' assumption that the destruction of Jerusalem could would coincide with the coming of Christ and the end of the world. This means that Jesus was answering a question that contained false assumptions. Now, the preterist view of J. Stuart Russell differs sharply from the view of Calvin. Russell, Russell argues that the disciples' assumptions was correct with one crucial qualifier. The disciples were asking about, not about the end of the world, but about the end of an age. The distinction is critical, not only to Russell, but to virtually all preterists at the end, that the end in view is not the end of all times, but the end of the Jewish age. It is generally assumed, Russell writes, that the disciples came to our Lord with three different questions relating to different events separating from each other by a long interval of time. That the first inquiry, when shall these things be, had a reference to the approaching destruction of the temple. That the second and third question, what shall be the signs of thy coming and the end of the world, referred to the events long posterior to the destruction of Jerusalem and, in fact, not yet accomplished. Russell voices his dissent by arguing that all three gospel writers correctly incorporate all three things within the same general historical event. St. Mark and St. Luke make the question of the disciples refer to one event in one time. It is not only presumptive presumable, therefore, but indubitable, I just butchered that word, that the questions of the disciples only refer to different aspects of the same great event. This harmonizes the statements of St. Matthew with the other uh, evangelicals and is plainly required by the circumstances of the case. So as we've read, right, there's a lot of similarities in the text. There's very little differences. Mark just brings us some, you know, the names of the, who the disciples are. Uh, and Luke omits the, the location uh, of the, uh, of where this is taking court, uh, taking place as Matthew and uh, Mark both highlight the fact that it's on the Mount of Olives. Luke omits that now and the time frame in which the gospels are written, Luke, we know is a later gospel. So, a lot of times, you know, we can see that it is uh, information is always implicit. It's understand that just because it's omitted doesn't mean it's differing. It's assumed by the reader that you would know what Luke is writing about. Uh, so there's actually a lot of really good context that R.C. Sproul digs into um, into this text. And much I won't go into it because it's just it's a lot to read. And I would advise you to go and grab this book. I think it's fantastic in reflection to helping me understand uh, kind of some of these views. Now, you know, when it comes to it, there's 
all sorts of different views, right? We we had four shows on the the main views of the end of times and how they kind of like to borrow scriptures and understandings, especially out of the book of Revelation, in their positioning to uh, declare that they are the only way to understand the end of times. And it's uh, difficult to come and read it without a presuppositional understanding. It's it's difficult to read these texts and not already assume one view or another. Um, because as I made a note to, and I didn't really give a description of, but Russell is a preterist. And that is the assumption that some of these signs that Jesus has talked about have been completed. Um, R.C. Sproul was a partial preterist, which means that some of the signs that Jesus spoke of, R.C. Sproul, Sproul believes that they were uh, completed, that they had been fulfilled, uh, such as the destruction of Jerusalem. So most people would probably find themselves to be partial preterist if, if you would start to really boil down your views. Now, you could probably go to the line to say that a full preterist is is just it, 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 that's a really thin line to walk. Some people would call it heresy. I don't know if I would call it that um, because then it assumes that all things are completed and the book of Revelation has completed. Um, and it, and if I've misrepresented that position at all, please let me know. But I'm as far as I understand, a full preterist as, believes that all of the words that Christ says here in the Olivet Discourse and in that uh, was revealed to John in the book of Revelation, all of those things have been completed. All of those events have already taken place. And, and I don't know of any that would hold to that position, actually. Um, there might be a few few people out there on the internets, but yeah, I'm curious. If, so if you get to this point in the show, let me know what your thoughts are. Shoot me a DM or something, because... Uh, I'm really curious. Uh, I, again, I don't hold to full preterism and I don't know anybody that does. Uh, I would probably say I'm a very light partial, if anything. Uh, there are a few things that I do think that, you know, obviously we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So we know that this little prophecy in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 uh, has been fulfilled. Uh, but I don't see many beyond that. Now, as I kind of read ahead in Matthew, when I got to verses 5 through 8, and I talked about the rumors of wars and wars happening. Obviously, we really haven't had a quiet period in history where war hasn't taken place. War is a very common thing with nations rising against nations. That's verse 7. Kingdoms against kingdoms. There's famines and earthquakes in all various places. All of these things have been taking place for a very long time. Uh, kingdoms against kingdoms. Obviously, the Roman empires later sacked uh, and great nations have risen and fallen since the time of Christ. And even here today in the United States, we are seeing unprecedented times in the last 200 years of the nation that we so dearly love potentially could be facing some uncertain futures. Could it be a nation rise against us and take us out? Possibly. Could another, you know, war happen and our nation gets desecrated? But it's quite possible. But it is God 
who is in control of that. And therefore, I have no fear. God is the one who rises up kings and takes down kings. And he's the one who raises up nations and demolishes nations. So uh, here's as we kind of look through the 24th chapter in Matthew. And if we look through Mark 13 and Luke 21, we get a nice little chart that R.C. was uh, has supplied us with. And it talks about kind of these are the events or signs that we will see uh, at, at as the time in this world ends. Uh, and so we're going to look at uh, how they kind of correlate with each other. So the first one is false Christ. That's the first sign. That's found in verse 5 in Matthew 24, 6 in Mark 13, 8 in Luke 21. Then we have rumors of wars found in all three chapters. Uh, this is between nations and between kingdoms found in all three chapters. Famines, pestilence, troubles, earthquakes, the persecution of Christ's disciples. Again, all three chapters. Now, Matthew only makes notes of these next couple. Apostasy of professing Christians, false prophets, and lawlessness. Matthew and Mark make note of gospel reaching worldwide. And then concluding here, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation and distress, and the astronomical uh, astronomical phenomenon is found in all three chapters, three books as well. So there is some significant things to really understand, and I really want to dig into these one-on-one as we go through this series. Now, again, there's a lot here. And, you know, I said early in the show, I don't know how many weeks we're going to be spending here on the Olivet Discourse. It's, again, two chapters in, in uh, Matthew, one in Mark and one in Luke. Um, but the, the, the material that's in here is worthy of quite a few weeks of study. And so I really want to, you know, get, ensure that I do the due diligence. Uh, but I don't want to overstretch it. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to wring this thing out longer than it needs to be. So... So uh, we're going to look again here at what R.C. writes. Though Calvin acknowledges that the problem of false Christ plagues the early church after the resurrection of Christ, he applies this warning to the church of all ages, not limiting it to the church of the first century. This application is quite legitimate as the appearance of imposters is a preannal problem. This question, however, is this. What significance did Jesus's warning have for and to his immediate hearers. It is one thing for us to ask how Jesus's teaching applies to us. It's quite another to ask how it was meant in the original context. We must keep in mind that Jesus was answering questions posed by his disciples, questions about when his previous uh, utterances would be fulfilled. His words were directed to them. Take heed, he says, that no one shall deceive you. He tells his disciples that they will hear rumors of wars and so forth. And so as Calvin notes and, and RC acknowledges, uh, and I am going to reiterate this false teachers, these false Christs that are arise, this is the first thing that comes out of his mouth. When they ask him about signs, this isn't something that, you know, it's not about, you know, any sign from heaven. It's not a sign that these nations will crumble or this or that will happen. But Jesus goes straight to the point and says, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. 
So this was a big issue after the resurrection. The first century is plagued with with all of these false Christs rising out, trying to make themselves famous, and they, in fact, led many astray. And interestingly enough, this wasn't just isolated to the first century. And Calvin notes it, and we see it in the, everywhere today, many today, for the last 2,000 years. This has been an ongoing problem. Now, it's not a, you know... Everybody, you know, there's not thousands of people coming out of the woodwork saying that they are Christ, but every single point in history has, you know, a significant amount of people. Uh, even today, there's a handful of people that I know uh, who claim to be Christ or the Christ, a resurrected Christ of some fashion, or you know, and it's it's ridiculous the the amount of people who follow them blindly, and not necessarily just claiming to be Christ, but, you know, the fact that there's so many false teachers today and they claim to be, you know, a, a prophet or a, or something sent by Christ, sent by God to bring some warning or something of that nature. And they lead many astray. And so I know that this text is very pointed on one aspect that, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. But there's also this little precursor to it. See to it that no one leads you astray. So that can be a reflection to either a false Christ, a false prophet, a false teacher. Uh, and then Jesus clarifies and says that many will come in his name. So as we take heed to this, we must have the utmost clear discernment on who is preaching God's word and who is leading many astray. Because these things are going to happen, Jesus says. He says that as the time unfolds, these events will take place. And then he follows up, and it's interesting. He says, you know, the first thing is that many will come in his name. The second is that there will be wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place, and the end is not even yet to come. Nations are going to rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, and then there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And this is all but the beginning of the birth pains. Just these things, all of these catastrophes, these wars, they're just the beginning. And barely the beginning. Because if you correlate the beginning of birth pains, sometimes you know birth pains and pregnancy labor can go on for hours and hours. And so this is just the beginning. Obviously, we know that, as I've mentioned, wars have happened throughout history. Man has fought against man, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation. We have famine across this world as the population in the world continues to expand, people go hungry, they die, and this is just the beginning. But interestingly enough, all of these things are relatively controlled upon man, right? We've got the false Christ, we have wars, we have nations against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, and famines. All of these things are really relatively controlled by man. We can control whether famine takes place, right? There's, yes, we have uh, starving people all around the world today, even here in the United States. 
and yet that can be fixed but most people don't care to fix it most people don't care to donate their time to soup kitchens or help the homeless um, now famine is a little bit more drastic it's probably a little it's you know usually garnered towards something more widespread and it's something often done when uh, there's drought or too much rain flooding things like that eroding away the land uh, so famines can have a much broader scape and not just isolated to you know the poor people who are going hungry so famines can kind of go either side but earthquakes have absolutely nothing to do with mankind we can't predict earthquakes we can't control them we can't stop them we can't start them and so it's interesting that this kind of gets nestled in there and i'm just kind of making a mental note of it as we pass through this text so as verse 9 comes up here in matthew uh, we see that jesus says and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake well, that's a left turn, isn't it? <laughs> Here we are talking about a, a macro of an instance, right? Nations against nations and kingdom against kingdoms, things that happen on a big scale. And then all of a sudden Jesus turns left and says, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. But who's they? Well, they can easily be described as the reprobates, the goats, those who are against Christ, those who hate us, because that is what we hear later in this verse. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I really want you to think about this for a minute. This isn't just something that's going to happen in one very blimp moment in time when the end comes. We have been hated by the nations since the Christ walked this earth, he himself experienced persecution at the hands of the Pharisees and the Roman Empire. And his disciples quickly experienced much tribulation and hatred and backlash and faced death because of the message they preached. Christ is in opposition from the very beginning to the world and the world hates us. Nations that hate you because of your belief in Christ, hate Christ first. And Jesus tells us that this is an evident thing. And he's telling his disciples this because here's the other thing we have to understand. This isn't just a message for us to sit and wallow in today. This message is directed contextually to his disciples. And he's telling them straight out, you might have walked with me for three years because let's remember too, the Olivet Discourse happens towards the very end of his ministry. It is not long after this time frame that Jesus is arrested. So he is telling them, you've walked with me for three years. You have experienced pretty much no issues because I've been around. I've protected you. But there is going to be a moment very soon that you will face this persecution. You will face suffering. You could face death. And as we know by history, every single one of his disciples, except John, died by the hands of man. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. As the apostles went out into the world to take their message to share their faith, 
they experienced immense persecution. Paul writes about it often. You know, one thing was out of his control when he wrote that he was shipwrecked, but he was beaten, flogged, kicked out of cities, stoned, left for dead, and then soon to be beheaded. Peter gets crucified upside down. Some of them are, uh, uh, others are beheaded. Some are stoned. Stephen. So the immediate context to this verse is troubling because they think that their message isn't going to bring them this type of response. They think that it might be good for them. It, you know, people are going to believe what they're saying, that this guy is the Messiah and many should come to believe in it. But if, anything teaches them, which we know that the disciples were pretty hard headed, uh, throughout the entire time of Christ's ministry with them. And if anything should teach them that they are going to be hated is the response of the towns, people that casted them out when they were to come in and Jesus preached or the response by the Pharisees and the hatred that he experienced from them. They should kind of maybe been ready for this. Jesus continues, and as we'll wrap up here in the 14th verse as we're over a time, Jesus continues in verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and become lawlessness. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So there's a lot in here to unpack. Well, let's start looking at some of these verses. Maybe we'll just cover verse 10 and then come back to 11 through 14, because there's a lot in this. You know, I mean, just even looking at verse nine is a couple minutes of discussion there. Verses 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So there's some who write that this is a signature verse against those who um, believe in once saved, always saved. And they believe that this is signaturely written to point people to the fact that you uh, will fall away or you could fall away and that there's just nothing, you know, and, and that you have to endure, right? Because verse 13 says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you have to work out your salvation. And it's another thing that we hear often that you have to be on guard. You have to be cognizant of, you have to be always working and striving towards, and it's often difficult when we come across that to, you know, kind of formulate in our minds, how does that really look now? Let's take verse 10 and and try to pin it into this context. Now there's an argument that seems to always come up in, especially in modern circles that you can fall away from your faith, that those that Christ has saved, uh, can in fact walk away 
from the faith. And some people even call it a false doctrine to believe that you will never, that you'll never lose your salvation. And whether you fall into either camp, uh, I'm not going to make this portion of the show here um, about that debate. Uh, the text clearly says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And so as I kind of looked through a different few study Bibles, and there's just not a lot that really uh, tell us anything worthwhile on it. And in fact, it's difficult to try to find anything that's got, you know, a, any sort of understanding and, and reflection to how did the, this text and what is its purpose for. And so as I come across one study Bible, it references 1 Timothy 4.1. So I will read that. And now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's verse 1. Now, Paul is writing this letter, and this is what we get to the fact that there are some, many, potentially, who will come and fall away. And this is a signature to the end of times. Basically, they call it the great apostasy. Now, as this happens, we have to ask ourselves, are these people true believers in Christ? Are they true followers? Or were they simply just playing the part? Because, I mean, in, in, in the reality of it, we just don't know. You know, the note says not only the last days before Christ's return, but the entire New Testament era. Acts 2.17 says, depart from the faith. Those who are once believing members of the church will turn away from Christ, thereby rejecting the gift of salvation. So it's quite possible, right? That those who believe will in fact walk away from the faith. And, and I think at some point we will come to a time with this great apostasy. And I think we're starting to see fragments of it. We're could be on the fringe. Again, I'm not, you know, jumping the gun and saying anything because I have no clue what's happening. But there are many significant people in the church world who have walked away from their faith and have um, expressed their disbelief or unbelief for it. And it seems to be more frequent. Obviously, the Internet brings us that ability now that we can hear everybody's opinion whenever we want, they want us to. But this this line that's kind of echoed again in in first uh, Timothy really has some significance around that, that in the end of times, we will see many falling away from their faith. So the great apostasy, the faith is being, you know, God is dwindling down true believers for, from unbelievers. Those who upon maybe the first fringes of persecution would flee the faith. Those would be falling into this category. So again, this is a lengthy text that can be uh, studied upon and dug into and, you know, looked at for many, 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 many long months, you know, and we've only gone through, uh, 10 verses and, and Matthew and, and kind of jumped back and forth a little bit in what Mark is saying and what Luke says in the first handful. And we'll continue doing so. Uh, and it took us uh, 55 minutes. Well, yeah, I'd take it five off for me babbling there. So 
let's reconvene next week and we will pick back up at verse 11 and we will continue on in this journey. Like I said, I don't know how long we're going to spend in this. I don't want to string it out too long and make it un, you know, unbearable because the next section I would like to get into is the Pauline eschatology. And then I have some books on Revelation that we are going to dig into as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is all from me. I am so blessed that you decided to jump into this episode with me today and i hope it was edifying educational and entertaining to listen to because uh, my goal and my purpose is to just start to unfold and unpack some of this stuff and highlight what is it that's going on and where do we find ourselves in this time frame Obviously, the next big section we'll be going through is the abomination of desolation. That gets a lot of people going because that has ties back into the prophet Daniel. And so we have some interesting stuff um, on our on our list to cover. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to jump out of here and you will hear me again next Friday as we dig into the last portion of our section before the abomination and uh that'll be gone so you can catch me on instagram reformed underscore lifestyle you can follow the podcast page uh, undying light ministries on instagram as well uh, that page primarily is just right now show updates and notes that shows are dropping so um, i don't know if, what i'm gonna do with it yet uh, i kind of like it that it's there i don't know maybe i'll put a poll out and see what you guys think so it kind of comes in waves that I'm on it and not on it. So with that, I'm going to jump out and go spend the rest of my evening sermon prepping for Sunday. And I will talk to you all later. God bless. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.